So this, this hymn was written by a lady named Anne Steele. Anne Steele lived in the 1700s in England and really wrote just incredibly honest hymns about all kinds of struggles. She's got poems about night terrors. She most likely had malaria, which I know seems strange that you could get malaria in England in the 1700s, but you could. Um, they had lots of swamps and she lived near a swamp. So she had lots of, um, you know, like, you know, fevers that would come and go and all kinds of stuff. Anyway, she was a very sickly woman, but she also was kind of like a Jane Austen character. Really, she was pretty well off. She never did marry. She didn't even want to get married, turned down numerous marriage proposals so that she could focus on her poetry, felt that God had called her and gifted her to do that. And she really is the most significant female hymn writer, um, in, in, in really up until Fanny Crosby, who wrote a ton of hymns in the late 19, uh, late 19th century. But Anne Steele um, really kind of paved the way for all that. And I just absolutely love her. I remember when I first found that text in an old hymnal, I remember thinking, whoa, like I didn't know who Anne Steele was. It just had the, the word Steele, S-T-E-E-L-E by this text, and I thought, dear refuge of my weary soul, I have no idea who Steele is, but man, can you actually say that in church? I mean, I guess at some point people thought you could sing a song like that in church because it's in a hymnal, but the hymnal was from 1806. It's been a long time since Anne Steele's hymns have been in a hymnal. Because really, I, this is my theory, but I, I, think it's, I think it's true. There really was a transformation theologically late 19th century, early 20th century, where people began to think that suffering wasn't something that God met you in the midst of. It was something to be gotten over as quick as possible. And her hymns really are about how wrestling with God in the midst of struggle. And it presents a very honest view that the normal Christian life is full of struggle and pain. That's not all it is. But it's always that. And um, so I just have loved her hymns, and I found they're so helpful for people that have maybe been raised on a diet of, I don't know, maybe it's not kind to say, but happy, clappy songs that present the Christian life as always like up on the mountaintop. As a matter of fact, one of my friends who used to do RUF at the University of Texas, the real UT, sorry, Travis, I had to say that, right? Um, <laughs> Anyway, the, um, I, couldn't, I couldn't resist, but the, uh, he, used to say, he used to say this, you know, and you imagine if, you, if you're down in Texas, you, this will make sense. You know, basically every student that comes to RUF that I meet with is trying to get back to a mountaintop experience they had in middle school camp. And they, they feel like that's when they really love Jesus, and then they, now they wonder if they really do because they don't feel the same kind of feelings. And that leads us into our topic for tonight, which is the idea of assurance. How can you have assurance that you're actually a Christian? To which I would say, beware of bumper sticker theology. Or I guess the modern version would be, you know, little theology memes. Uh, or anything that you can fit on a t-shirt. If it's about Christian theology, it's probably, um, it's probably simplistic and lacks the important nuance that the Bible gives. And a good example, I think, is this little phrase. Maybe you've heard this, and maybe you're now going to think I'm a heretic. Once saved, always saved. For a lot of people, that's what they know about assurance. Once saved, always saved. But what that probably means is, 
If somebody persuaded you somehow or other to walk down an aisle and pray a prayer, even maybe feeding you phrase by phrase these words, then you never need to worry or wonder about whether or not you're a Christian. I remember, actually, when I was in high school, Billy Graham came to Baltimore. And I remember I'd gotten saved probably in ninth grade, 10th grade. Um, and I, I remember going to the training if you wanted to be a counselor at the Billy Graham Crusade. And I remember one of the things they said is if somebody comes forward and they pray those prayers, then hear the Bible verses, you read them and tell them that now they're a Christian and they don't need to worry about whether or not they're going to go to heaven. And I thought, huh, I, I really, I understand the sentiment. If you truly are saved, you will not be taken out of God's hand. But there's a difference between making a decision and actually being converted. And assurance of salvation gets into that. And it's actually a a rather complicated idea in the Bible. But Romans 8 is one of the most important chapters for helping us think about this question. How can I know that I'm actually a Christian? Because once saved, always saved really flattens out this important topic, which is eternal security, which I believe in. But it also undermines, that little phrase, I believe, undermines the biblical exhortation, for instance, in 2 Peter 1.10, to diligently make your calling and election sure. The Bible exhorts us to do that. And, and, and you kind of undercut the Bible's teaching if you say, well, as long as you pray to prayer, then you never need to think about this again. Furthermore, the Bible speaks about false faith. Jesus says, some people on the last day will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, we did all these things in your name. And I will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Not I knew you, but you screwed up. And so you lost your salvation. No, he doesn't say that. But he says, I never knew you. In other words, there is the possibility, Jesus is saying, of people that think they're Christians that may not be. Okay? And John, in his gospel, John's gospel says that he's written these things that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. But you know what he says at the end of his first letter? First John, he says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So he's, I'm writing to Christians so that you may know you have eternal life. It's one thing to know that Jesus is the Son of God, but in 1 John, John says, I want you to know that you have eternal life. And Hebrews chapter 9, which we're going to look at a little later, says that unless your conscience has been cleansed from acts that lead to death, you cannot serve God. There are a lot of people who are unsure about where they stand with God, who are doing a lot of religious things to make themselves feel more secure in God's love. And Romans 8 speaks into all of this stuff. Assurance of salvation is a a carefully nuanced doctrine in the Bible that's super important and one that we are going to spend the evening looking at. Because it's not just enough to be a Christian. God wants you to know and to have assurance. Because it's out of that assurance that you live the Christian life. And it actually is one of the things that was most distinctive about Christianity in the ancient world. 
is that it offered the hope that you could know the triune God who created heaven and earth, and you could be sure that you would have a relationship with him forever. That was not something any other religion could promise or did promise. Matter of fact, there have been even large parts of the Christian church that think that having assurance of salvation is actually bad for you. Did you know that? The Roman Catholic Church in the Council of Trent in the 1540s, official dogma, official doctrine, still taught to this day, says that assurance is a Protestant heresy. That's strong. Is it? Well, let's look at Romans 8. Romans 8 is the place to look at this stuff. Now, uh, I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's a good chapter. We've read some of it already. We haven't read the whole thing. But the, to get at the doctrine of assurance, we need to see the whole chapter and how it fits together. I'm not going to talk about all, the, all of it, but I want you to see how it all comes together. Okay? So hang on. There is therefore now... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God for the creation was subjected to futility or frustration, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We're going to talk all about this groaning stuff next week. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So if God and Jesus aren't going to condemn you, who's left? Right? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sleep to be slaughtered? No! In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, that's the language of assurance, people, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Romans chapter 8. It's a mouthful. But do you see, you've got to read the whole thing to really get the effect. As a matter of fact, even going through uh, a book of the Bible like Romans chapter by chapter, like we've been doing, spread out over the whole semester... Even that's not as good as sitting down and reading it all at one sitting. And I encourage you to do that sometime. Because these letters were written to be read out loud to the church at one sitting. It's still fine and helpful to dig in and consider a portion at a time. But man, it's good to read big chunks of God's word. Let me pray and then we're going to dig into this. Lord, we do thank you for your word. Oh Lord, thank you that you have given such glorious words to us to consider and to chew on tonight. Send your spirit to help us, we pray. Amen. So, assurance. You get the end there, right? Paul is sure. How can we be sure? How can we be sure that our future is hopeful? How can we be sure that there is now no condemnation and that never will anything separate us from the love of God. Those are promises that are made to Christians. 
But the question sometimes is raised for you, like it has been for me, how do I know I'm a Christian? And there are different answers that different Christian groups give to this question. Some say, like I mentioned earlier, well, the way you know is if you prayed the right prayer, doesn't matter how you've lived, doesn't matter if you go out and you know, become an axe murderer, as long as you prayed those magic words, then you know that you never have to worry about, about this, right? And others would say, well, as long as you work really hard, this is the Catholic view, right? If you get enough grace built into you through the sacraments and through doing all the right things and trying your best, hopefully, maybe, you get to the point by the end of your life where you have enough grace that God will smile at you, but probably not, because the only people that experience that are saints. The rest of us go to purgatory, where he finishes the work to get us ready to be in heaven. There's lots of different views of this, okay? John Wesley taught that you can't have assurance of salvation. Why? Because it'll make people lazy, that you won't really keep working hard and doing good deeds if you're sure God loves you anyway. There are lots of different views about this. What do we see in Romans 8? Here's my contention, that what we see in Romans 8 is that assurance is possible, that you can know, and there is a threefold basis. There's actually three things that Paul talks about in Romans 8 about how we can know, things that, when they're all working together, give us confidence. However, you are not saved by how confident you are that you're saved. And this is really important, because there are all kinds of reasons why your sense of God's love can go up and down in this life. I know there's a lot of y'all have probably been raised that if you don't know the day and the hour when you were converted and you can tell your testimony, the day and the hour, then you have no right to believe you really are a Christian. Now, you know, the Apostle Paul had a pretty dramatic testimony, didn't he? On the road to Damascus, he's going down to, to murder Christians and, and a light strikes him. He gets converted, right? Dramatic. Do you know he never points to that story as evidence for why he knows he's a Christian. He doesn't. Because nowhere does it say that as long as you know the day and the hour, then you can be sure you're a Christian. And if you don't know the day and the hour, well, then you better be shaken in your boots because you may not actually be a Christian. There's all kinds of bad teaching about this. I had a student once years ago, he was from Kentucky, had grown up in a particular church that emphasized the altar call every single week so that people would just, you know, better make sure if you, you know, we're converted, but you're not quite sure, well, you better rededicate your rededications every week, every week. And I remember him telling me about a, a, a youth retreat that he went on when he was in high school, and the, the speaker said this, if you're 99% sure, you're 100% lost. If you're 99% sure that you're a Christian, but you're not 100% sure, then you're 100% lost. That's crazy. It's crazy. And that will really mess you up, won't it? Because it's saying that your, your sense of your salvation is what saves you. No, Jesus saves you. And one of the greatest prayers in the Bible is, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. As a matter of fact, I don't think you can sing that hymn we just did, Jesus, I my cross have taken, without part of you saying, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Right? 
So what is the threefold basis? It's this. Trust in the promises, seeing fruit, and the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Let me show you where that is. First, trust in the promises. Look, it's, it's like bookends in this, in this chapter. Look at, cha- look at verse 1, right off the beginning. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the first thing you've got to understand is that eternal security is possible. Like some people would say, why would you even bother talking about assurance? Because if you die in sin, this is our, our, our friends down at, you know, in the Church of Christ have this view, that you can be saved, but then you can kind of go out of that status, depending on if you're prayed up or depending on if you really are walking with the Lord. You go in and out, right? So that perspective would say eternal security is a myth. It's not actually true. It depends on how well you're living the Christian life. Okay, But I would say, no, Paul is pretty sure here that there is now no condemnation. And later he says, nothing can separate you, neither life nor death. I remember when I was in college and thought I was real smart telling a preacher, well, I know Romans 8 and all that stuff, but we can take ourselves out of the love of God by what we do. We can turn away from him. And he said, well, Kevin, it says... Neither things created or things not created. Which one are you in? Are you like a third category that's not? Like, how could Paul say it in a way that you would actually believe what he's saying? Like, there's no third possibility, right? He couldn't use words that were bigger or stronger than this. So the first thing you have to understand is the Bible promises that true Christians will persevere because God preserves them. This is uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. It talks about how we have an inheritance that kept, that's kept in heaven for us. I might add where we can't get at it to screw it up. And it says that we are shielded by God's power through faith. Those prepositions are important. We're not shielded because of our faith. We're shielded by God's power through faith. His, our faith is how he holds on to us, and he sustains it. This is why the book of Hebrews says that God is the author and finisher of our faith. This is why Ephesians chapter 2 says that you have been saved by grace through faith, not because of faith. It's not your part that you added to the economy of salvation. You're saved by grace through faith. And then just to make sure you get the point, he says, and this is not of yourselves, but it's a gift of God. So salvation is God making dead people alive. And if that's truly happened to you, you will not be snatched out of God's hand. Nothing can separate you, okay? So have you trusted in the promises? That's the first question, because the primary basis for knowing that you can be secure in the love of God is that God promises that all those who have fled to him, he will not cast them out. Right? Jesus says, all who come to me, all who come to me are welcomed. Have you come to him? Have you fled to Christ? And I would say this, actually, to come to him at all has actually even the kernel of assurance built into it. So the book of Hebrews says, 
To come to God, you must believe that he exists and rewards those who go to him, to come to him. Now, it's not a wage. Never mistake a reward and a wage. It's not that you come to him and then you get paid like a wage because you did the right thing. But you need to believe that God exists and that he welcomes those who throw themselves upon his mercy. So there is even like the little flickering light of assurance is in saving faith. Saving faith requires that you throw yourself upon a God who you believe will receive you. But that's not very strong. And what God wants to do is to strengthen our assurance, to strengthen our belief in his love. And so he gives us some other things that come alongside the promises. The first is seeing fruit. But here's the thing. Seeing fruit doesn't mean seeing that you no longer struggle. Look at um, verse 7 of chapter 8. He says, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, for indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in in the Spirit. And then he goes on, he keeps talking about your body being dead, but you're alive. And then finally he says that as many as are the sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. And as I said last week, that's not talking about praying and then God kind of speaks to you in kind of a mystical voice and tells you what class to take or, you know, where to, you know, where to park. Or, no, it's talking about if you are led to fight against sin, that helps build your sense that something really is different. The, the way uh, Robert Murray McShane, a great uh, mentor of mine from afar, because he died in the 1800s, but, um, but his biography is just tremendous. It's basically his journal, and I read it when I was your age, and it just completely rocked my world. And he said that, that Christians are known as much by their warfare as they are by their peace. You've been set free to struggle, right? And that's what he talks about here. True Christians feel like they're, they've got this battle going on in them. So when I say that God gives you these promises and says, you can believe these promises, they're true. But also, when you see in your life that, that, that there is a battle going on, a battle going on, not just to sort of not feel bad all the time or not feel guilty all the time, but really a battle to say, I really want to live for you, God. I really want to be the man or the woman that you've made me to be for your glory. If you find any of that going on, be encouraged. Be encouraged. True Christians live differently than they used to. The challenge, though, is for some of y'all, maybe you've grown up and you would say, I've never known a day or an hour when I didn't know the love of God. Right? And so you can't necessarily look back. I mean, sometimes this is what's interesting. Sometimes people wish that they had a dramatic testimony because then they think it would give them more assurance. I say, don't wish that. Don't wish that. If God has kept you from being as bad as you want to be, then give him praise and thank him for that. And the fact that you still like agonize over these sorts of things, even that is evidence 
that you're not somebody who's dead and hostile to God's law. He says, if you were not a Christian, you couldn't obey God, you wouldn't want to. The mind of sinful flesh is at enmity, it's at warfare with God. And I know you feel like that sometimes, but that's not how you feel all the time if you're a Christian. In fact, the Puritans were really interesting in this regard. I know the Puritans get a bad rap, I think, in a lot of ways. They did some crazy stuff, okay? And even the, ta- the name, it's not one they took for themselves. It's one that their enemies put on them because they were just so, you know, concerned about holiness. But here's what's interesting. They very much believed in God's sovereign, free grace. They were, for the most part, all Calvinists, these Puritans. And, um, you know, if you don't know what that is, when I'm talking about that, then I'm going to explain about it a little bit in a bit, in a bit here. But the uh, thing that they did that I thought was so fascinating is they regularly would talk about fleeing from sin, not because they believed that then God was going to, like, zap them, but they would say that one of the main reasons to flee from sin is that it clouds your sense of God's love. And if your sense of God's love is clouded, it makes you pretty defenseless against the assaults of the enemy. And that, I think, is actually a big part of what Paul's doing here in Romans 8. He's going out of his way to say, you can be sure that you're a son of God. Therefore, you can stand. This is the end of Ephesians when Paul talks about taking up the shield of faith, right? All the armor of God. You know, actually, Paul didn't come up with this idea of the armor of God out of the blue. It actually comes from Isaiah, where God talks about how the Messiah is going to take up the armor of God and do this battle. What it means to take up the armor of God is to say, I'm trusting in the battle that Jesus won, okay? And, and, and if, if I'm doing that, then I can have power to stand against the temptations. And so much of the temptations have their power because they poison you and make you doubt God's love. Paul here says that it's important that we have assurance if we would fight against sin. That's what's fascinating. Look at verse 4. He says what God has, has done, what the law couldn't do. And look at, look at verse 4. This is the purpose clause. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The re, what Paul's saying is God did the gospel so that we could live differently. And Paul says the way that I'm going to really help you be equipped and energized for the battle against sin is to help you understand how secure you are in the love of God because you're going to fail fighting against sin. And if you think that that changes what God thinks about you, well then you might as well just give up now (laughs) because once you start to believe that, I don't mean that seriously, but I mean if you, yeah, just walk out, you're done. What I mean is if when you battle against sin, or don't even battle against sin, but know you should, and then you feel that God now is disappointed in you, well, that, it's just like a, this vicious cycle. And you just go down, down, down in the depths of despair. And so what does Paul say? He says, there is now no condemnation. Even though sometimes you lose the battle and you give in, doesn't matter, there's still now no condemnation. 
He doesn't say there's now no condemnation when you're victorious, but there is condemnation when you screw up. No, he says there's now no condemnation, and it's not about whether you are victorious or not. The struggle should encourage you that you really are a child of God, and if you're a child of God, what does he say? You're an heir. That means you have a future that's secure and solid, not based on how well you live the Christian life, right? I I love this. I, I think we could learn from this. Sometimes when you're faced with temptation, say, Lord, help me to fight against this because I don't want to lose my sense of your love. It's so precious to me. I need it. Why would I give it up for this momentary pleasure of sin? Well, there's a third basis. The third basis is the witness of the Spirit with our spirit by which we cry, Abba, Father. Look at verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. This is why I don't believe that Wesley and the Catholics are right about this. Paul says fear is not the motivation for the Christian life. Oh, it may work. It may work in a sense to make you kind of reform your behavior, but it doesn't change the heart. And this is what he said at the beginning, chapter 8. The law was powerless to change us. It could threaten, and it could maybe even make you not do some of the things that you really want to do, but it couldn't actually change you. What God did in the gospel, sending his son to live and die in your place, melts your heart and changes you. And if that was true about God and the gospel, Paul's saying he sends the Spirit so that you wouldn't live in fear. The Christian life is not about living in fear. First John says, perfect love casts out fear. And I think there are way too many Christians and preachers that think that fear is the best motivation to get people to live holy lives or to do things they want people to do. It's not true. It might work for a little while, but in the end, it just makes you more hardened and bitter towards God. And as I said, the main reason that you sin is because you're suspicious of God's goodness. You think that he really doesn't have a good plan for you, therefore you need to take matters into your own hands. And the way God comes in to undercut that poison is to assure you that you are his beloved child. That's verse 15. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, Papa. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Okay, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. There have been different interpretations of this. Some of the Puritans actually thought that what this meant was the Spirit allows us to see fruit in our lives. And so for all practical purposes, they had two bases. You need to believe in the promises, and then you need to see fruit. And if you don't see fruit, well, I'm not sure. I don't think that's what Paul's saying here. What he says is the Spirit is a concurring witness, testifying with our spirit in addition to what we see. There is this mystical experience that God is my Father and I am his child. In other words... The Spirit testifies to the things that we see, but in a 
powerful experiential way. I think Paul's talking about a mystical experience here. And I, I, I looked at, we looked at Galatians 4 last week where Paul says similar thing, but there he talks about how God sent Jesus at just the right time to redeem us, to make us sons and daughters of the living God. And then he sends the Spirit to make us feel like sons and daughters. It's the same thing he's saying here. The main principal role of the Holy Spirit is to assure you of your sonship. That's it. That's the main purpose the Spirit is about. Now, to have a strong sense of assurance, we need all three of these working together. And this is really important, right? Because if you have only one, you will probably have more doubts than God really wants, but you also may be deceived. I don't know. Again, you're not saved by how sure you are saved. You're hearing me, right? You're not saved by how sure you are that you're saved. But if you don't have all three of these working together, it's worth talking about with somebody. Let's get coffee. We'll talk about it, right? I'm going to say more about this. Let me, let me explain. In other words, if you're like, well, I believe the promises, but I've never seen any difference in my life. I don't really feel any kind of desire to fight against sin or to live for God's glory. I'm not saying that there are certain sins that really have a hold on you. I'm not saying that because I know that everybody could, could go around the room and if they had the nerve and could talk about things that they seem to struggle with, that they don't seem to you know, feel like they're battling well. But I'm saying like you just never have had any evidence of any kind of change in your life and you've never felt this sense of closeness, this sense that God is my father. Again, you might be a Christian, but I suspect that you worry about it all the time because all you have are the promises. Now the promises are enough. <laughs> Trusting in the promises is all you need, okay? But God also wants you to be able to see fruit and be able to experience the testimony of the Spirit. If you are somebody who would say, well, you know, I've never really read the Bible. I don't really understand the gospel. But, you know, at some point I decided I just didn't like the way I was living and I decided to make a real change in my life. You know, uh, I, I remember there was an awful song by a Christian band that I won't name, but it, it was uh, this song called Feather in Your Cap. And I was like, what? This song was basically like, you know, you were down and out. You know, you were struggling with all these things and you picked yourself up and that's a feather in your cap. And you can just imagine, you know, it was like this hair metal band. And I remember thinking, like, that is so not the gospel. The gospel is not, thank, thank you, God, that I was able to pick myself up by my bootstraps. You know, praise you, really praise me, praise you, you know, right? So, so that's like fruit by itself can be masqueraded by your own willpower, even your own fear, or even by shame, by feeling like I don't want to be like, this is what all the Christians, I like Christians, I like hanging out with Christians, so I better act like a Christian. You know, and I can kind of act like a Christian and maybe nobody will notice. But deep in my heart, I don't feel any kind of sense of closeness to God. And I don't believe I've ever really asked him to forgive me for my sins. OK, and then there's a third, like a mystical sense that God loves you. But you've never seen any change and you've never 
really trusted in the promises of God. Again, you might be a Christian, but to have a well-grounded assurance that can help buoy you in your struggles, in your doubts, all three of these working together is really helpful. Now, a couple practical questions. True Christians, true Christians, struggle with assurance for actually a lot of reasons. I could do another whole sermon on, on this. God is not a vending machine where you do the right things and you get a predictable result. Or, or the way I like to say it is, God is not the divine pharmacist where we get to write the prescription and he fills it. He is the divine healer who gets to diagnose, prescribe, and sometimes he takes that scalpel and he cuts somewhere we don't want him to cut. Always with an end of healing. That's what it says. God works all things for the good. And we're going to talk about the comfort of God's sovereignty two weeks from now. Next week, we talk about uh, the groaning, and the week after that, the comfort of God's sovereignty. That's how we're going to end the last two weeks of our UF. So what I'm saying is sometimes God will take away our sense of his love to draw us to a deeper trust. This is why I think it's helpful to understand that the mountaintop experience is cool. But you know, remember when um, Peter was with Jesus up on the mountain and he saw the, the Mount of Transfiguration there? Remember what he wanted to do? Let's build some huts right here. Let's just hang out here. And Jesus is like, no, I got to go down the, back down the mountain and go to the cross. Similarly, when Jesus, you remember the baptism of Jesus? The Holy Spirit comes down like a dove. A voice from heaven says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Wouldn't you love to hear that out loud? Right? Again, you see the Spirit assuring Jesus of his sonship. The Spirit assures Jesus of his sonship. That's how you know that the Spirit is at work to assure you of your sonship. But again, what happens next? The Spirit. You go look, Matthew. It's gospel. The Spirit drives Jesus into the desert to be tempted. So sometimes God puts us through difficult things to draw us to a deeper level of trust that's deeper than just our feelings. So what I mean is some Christians struggle with assurance who really are Christians. And for a variety of reasons, sometimes it's temperament, sometimes it's physical, sometimes it's you know, physiological, sometimes it's hormonal imbalance, it all kinds of things that can make it hard for us to hear and believe the truth, okay? So it's important that we understand that. Sometimes living in unrepentant sin, again, clouds your sense of God's love. So it's so important that we teach people that you can be a Christian and have, even in your own life, times where you're feeling more secure and times when you're really struggling and doubting. That's why you need to not just live in your own head and you need to talk to people. And you need to even ask your friends to pray for you that you would believe the gospel, that it would sink into your heart. And sometimes you just need people to kind of hold your hand and say, this is really true. It's true. It's true. Right? I was just thinking, even when I said that phrase, I was thinking about a time when a friend of mine lost his daughter in a horrific accident. I remember going to the funeral, and I remember um, he looked, he, you know, as he went forward and, you know, told him how sorry you were. He just looked me in the eye and he says, it's all true, brother. It's all true. The gospel is true. Even in the midst of this, I found that God has met me in a place that it's all true. 
It's important that we have strong assurance. It's important that we seek the means of grace, the word of God, um, church, people praying for us. I, I would add seeking answers to some of your spiritual questions. Sometimes doubts that get raised in like a religion class or talking with people or seeing things or hearing things and you're like can really throw you off and then sometimes you, people just sit quietly or just kind of suffer in silence and don't bring those doubts to the surface and talk about them. That's part of what we want to do on Friday. Just we don't believe there are any bad questions and it's worth talking about this stuff. Doesn't mean that I have an answer, but we can respond and kind of walk together talking about some of this stuff. And then, then I'll just say this. Now, I, I don't want to get into this too deep, right? Um, the conscience issue. So if you're more from the, the, the kind of background that focuses on man's free will, then there's a particular struggle for assurance, which is, did I really mean it when I asked Jesus into my heart? In those kind of churches, and this is how I, was, I grew up, I remember, you know, after I think I became a Christian, I remember after I first prayed, like every night for a week, praying over and over again because I didn't feel it any different. And wondering if it, because I expected some big kind of fireworks sort of thing. So that, you know, is why in that kind of system, all the focus is on did you decide and did you really mean it? And then you're kind of plagued with, I don't know if I really meant it. And all I would say is, you didn't mean it enough to be saved. You're not saved by how much you realized you needed Jesus. You're saved by Jesus. All right? And so don't be stuck in that, that just trap of, did I really, really mean it? I better do it again, just to make sure. Okay? Don't be stuck in that. But for people who believe God's sovereign grace changes us, makes dead people alive, which is what I believe the Bible teaches, there is also a struggle with assurance, which is, how do I know it really happened to me? And that's what I've been talking about tonight. God gives us ways to know. And, and, and we should um, use those, really. All right. Uh, last, last thing I want to say is the problem of making a Jesus out of your faith. I won't read this whole chapter or this whole little thing, but it's a great quote. It's from a guy named William Romaine, like Romaine Lettuce. Um, he was a friend of John Newton, the hymn writer who wrote Amazing Grace and wrote that hymn, I Asked the Lord That I Might Grow. And in one of his letters, he's talking to somebody who basically was really struggling to, to, to have assurance. And, and he says, basically, in this letter, here's what he says. He's basically like, the problem is you're looking at your faith and how kind of solid your faith is for whether or not you believe God loves you. And, and, and what he says is, the, the problem is you've actually made a Jesus out of your faith. You made a Jesus out of your faith. You're expecting your faith to save you rather than thinking that Jesus saves you. And if your faith could talk back to you and say, don't look at me. <laughs> like, I've got nothing to give you. I'm going to point you to Jesus. And, and I think maybe the way to understand what he's talking about here is the best way to fall out of love is to focus on the relationship rather than the other person. Do you ever work on the relationship? Don't work on a relationship. Don't ever work on a relationship. Focus on the other person. And ask you, God to give you his love for that person. Because let me tell you, when you get married one day, if you will, and you stand before God and these witnesses and you make vows to love this person for richer or poorer, like, how can you do that? 
You don't even know what tomorrow holds, and you're going to make vows like that? I tell people you either make those vows out of naivete or out of great faith, faith that God will give you his love for that other person. Because what God says in Hosea to his own people, he says, your love for me is like the morning mist. As soon as the sun comes up, it's gone. And if our love for God, who is perfect, is like the morning mist, how do you think you're going to sustain a lifetime of loving another person sacrificially? It's only if God gives you his love for that person. So what I'm saying is your relationship with Jesus, don't focus on the relationship like it's a project. Focus on Jesus. Go to the Bible to see Jesus as more beautiful and believable. Don't just think about whether you read three chapters or one chapter or two verses and then wonder about what you should do. That's focusing on the relationship. Focus on Jesus. When you come to worship, focus on Jesus. When you Partake the sacraments. It's the gospel preached in a picture to show you Jesus and to show you God's commitment. Well, that's enough. (laughs) We're going to talk about groaning next week, and then we're going to talk about the comfort of God's sovereignty. Let me pray as the worship team comes forward.